This is Sam Swartz and Nicholas Leet with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Absentee ballot drop boxes will officially remain for the spring primary election the Wisconsin Supreme Court has ruled. The Associated Press reports that the court ruled 4-3 to three on Friday to allow the boxes to remain in place for the election in just around two weeks. The ruling comes after an appeals court ruled last week to allow the drop boxes to remain in place as well, stating that the election process had already begun for the spring primary election. The ruling is not the last we will hear on the matter, however, as neither court agreed to come to a full ruling on the drop boxes, and their use in the spring general election in April is still up for debate. A consumer advocacy group is asking state regulators to stop the construction of the Wisconsin portion of a proposed energy transmission line, reports Wisconsin Public Radio. The Citizens Utility Board is asking the state's Public Service Commission, an independent regulatory agency, to halt the construction due to a ruling that stated that the multiple state long line could not cross the Mississippi River. The originally approved plan would stretch from Dane County to Dubuque County in Iowa. The board argues that since the project cannot be built to completion, the line should halt construction due to, quote, building a bridge to nowhere, end quote. The owners of the line, American Transmission Company, ITC Midwest, and Dairyland Power, say that they have already spent $161 million on the project and do not currently intend to stop, though they did say how they plan to finish the project without crossing the Mississippi. A farm on Madison's east side, held by a family for over 100 years, is slated to be sold to two area developers, the Wisconsin State Journal reports. The Voigt family farm, just east of Starkweather Creek along Milwaukee Street, will be sold to Stonehouse Development and Threshold Development Group, though the two developers have said they aren't sure what to build on the property. The approximately 60-acre farm drew the attention of community members who attempted to raise money to buy the farm but were unsuccessful. The developers have said that they do plan to meet with community members to discuss plans for the property. After about two months in operation, the city of Madison's tiny shelter encampment on Dairy Drive has served about two and a half dozen individuals, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. Many of Dairy Drive's campers living in tiny houses used to live at Rindle Park, officially closed by the city in early December after months of back and forth over the future development of the encampment. The new shelters at Dairy Drive operated at Mach 1 Health and Kaba Recovery Services provided heated shelter, but it also provides optional mental health services and substance abuse treatment. Meanwhile, the city also offers an alternative option for unhoused folks at Madison Plaza Hotel. And now for your COVID-19 news and numbers. Today is the two-year anniversary of the first COVID-19 case reaching Wisconsin. In the following two years, almost a quarter of the Wisconsin population would be infected with COVID-19. Today, the seven-day running average of new cases dipped to 5,926 cases a day, the lowest running average in a month. 72 deaths were reported since the weekend for a daily average of 31 COVID-19 deaths a day. Meanwhile, Wisconsin passed another threshold over the weekend, crossing into over 9 million vaccine shots, whether initial doses or boosters, distributed since the pandemic began. Over 63% of Wisconsinites have received at least one dose of the vaccine. Meanwhile, local health officials say that 46% of 5 to 11-year-olds in Dane County are unvaccinated, the highest percentage of eligible but unvaccinated people in the county. And now on to today's top stories. A coalition of Republican lawmakers is pushing legislation that would legalize medical marijuana in Wisconsin. 
Nearly all of Wisconsin's neighboring states, except Iowa, have legalized marijuana in some form. Jonah Chester from the Wisconsin News Connection has more. Wisconsin is a Midwestern island of marijuana prohibition. Most of its neighboring states have legalized pot in some form. That may soon change as a coalition of Republican lawmakers are introducing a bill that would legalize medical marijuana. 36 other states, Washington, D.C., and three U.S. territories permit medical marijuana, according to the National Conference of State Legislatures. Senator Mary Felskowski, a Republican from Irma and one of the bill's lead sponsors, says this isn't a partisan issue. When you look at the map of states where medical marijuana is legal, you'll see conservative states like Florida and South Dakota and more liberal states like California and New York offering a compassionate option for those that need relief. The policy would only allow medical marijuana in the form of a liquid, oil, topical tincture, or pill. A similar bill was introduced by Felskowski during the last legislative session, but it stagnated and failed to pass. This version will likely also face long odds as the Senate on Tuesday passed a measure increasing criminal penalties for extracting resin from cannabis. Representative Patrick Snyder, a Republican from Schofield, outlined a tight administrative system for regulating and dispensing medical marijuana, which would be overseen by the Wisconsin Department of Revenue and a Medical Marijuana Regulatory Commission. Wisconsin's private sector, under regulation from the commission and DOR, will provide the production, the processing, laboratory testing, transportation, and dispensing. A 2019 poll from the Marquette University Law School found that more than 80% of Wisconsinites supported legalizing medical marijuana, and nearly 60% supported complete legalization. Governor Tony Evers included a measure to legalize pot in his 2021 through 2023 biennial state budget, but it was stripped out by Republicans in the legislature. For the Wisconsin News Connection, I'm Jonah Chester. Support for this reporting is provided by the Carnegie Corporation of New York. Find our eight trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. A tree labyrinth in Oldbrick Park officially opened for the public yesterday. Now, families can go and walk around the art installment that consists of hundreds of holiday tree branches. Reporter Ben Kern has the final story for WORT. February is already here. But that doesn't mean the holiday spirit needs to die. That's what Lillian Sizemore believes, at least. Sizemore is the artist behind How Lovely Are Thy Branches, a nearly 100 feet wide exhibit standing on the east coast side of Lake Monona. This tree labyrinth officially opened yesterday and is free for the public to come and enjoy the natural beauty that lies within the walls made entirely of recycled holiday trees. The labyrinth is open during Ulbrich Park's normal hours only and will stand until the end of February. I had the pleasure of going down to Ulbrich and experiencing the unique art installment this afternoon, and let me tell you, I was instantly blown away by its execution. As you get out of your car and into the cold lake winds, you are directed to the entrance by bright orange cones sitting on the pavement. Your first steps into the exhibit are guided by tree walls made of pine and birch that lead you through an overhead sign that reads, Walk the Labyrinth. Once you are beyond the initial corridor, you find yourself in a spherical, open intersection where you choose what to experience first. To the right, an open waiting room with casual hay seating. Farther up, a tree museum that displays 10 to 20 full-size trees of various different evergreen species. Then, straight ahead, the entrance to the main attraction, the labyrinth. A lone standing sign awaits you as you head towards the entrance that reads, Welcome to the labyrinth. One path in, one path out. The gift of the labyrinth is that it is easy to do. As you slowly make your way down the long entrance, you get a chance to experience a rush of senses that the exhibit embodies. 
From the smell of pine needles, to the sound of crunching snow beneath your feet, to the smiling faces that you see as you walk past other visitors, How Lovely Are Thy Branches gives the public a chance to enjoy something as simple as walking through tree-made walls in an environment built from the effort of a local artist and community members. When you make it to the circular moving part of the labyrinth, all you need to do is follow the walls. No tricks, no dead ends, no maze-esque puzzles just walkways for people to share the fresh air with others. The beauty behind this is that you only need to go straight and the paths will naturally guide you. After you complete the labyrinth, you exit through the same path that you entered. I was joined by several other members of the community during my experience at Ulbrick. They seemed to share my fascination and excitement of the exhibit. I enjoyed it a lot. It's, it's great. It's, it's a really nice location. I like uh, all the birch trees and the labyrinth itself is um, very unique a church in Santa Barbara and so to see this out here is just amazing now that I live back in where it's cold. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't quite know what it would look like when it was done how big it was or I didn't know if the trees were gonna be you know five or six feet you know or or just I kind of envisioned them lower to the ground like this but um, yeah so I, I kind of had some ideas in my head and then coming here was just even better than I thought. Yeah. More information is in the online version of the story at wortfm.org. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Ben Kern. It's now 6.16 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. After the city of Madison experienced historic flooding in 2018, the City Engineering Division put together a study to find how Madison's watershed works and what can be changed to keep the city from flooding again. Today, the city released their first final drafts of three different watersheds around Madison and is asking the public to weigh in on the reports. To learn more, WORT producer Nate Weggehout spoke of with the city engineering expert about the new reports. I'm talking with Hannah Molinitsky with the City of Madison Engineering Division. Hannah, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thanks for having me. So let's start things off with what are these reports and why should people care about these reports? So if you can remember back in 2018, the City of Madison uh, was devastated, especially on the west side of historic flooding. Um, we've always focused on stormwater and stormwater infrastructure within the city of Madison, but that, that specific year really highlighted the need to put toward finding solutions for our community. We all know that um, you know, we're, we're built by lakes. We're built with some structural challenges for our community when it comes to designing that stormwater infrastructure. Um, so 
the 2018 historic flood really put it on the forefront saying to us, especially, yes, we've been prioritizing stormwater infrastructure, but now let's launch these watershed studies and really critically look at how water is flowing holistically in our area. So in 2018, we launched the watershed studies, and that covers um, roughly 22 watersheds in the city. We have 17 of those studies underway, um, but we've been kind of pecking away at them, um, you know, a few at a time and launching them and, and continuing to go through the 22. The process basically is looking at sections of the city, and we're starting on the west side because of 2018 and how bad it was that year and devastating, um, but looking at um, what can we do for flooding solutions? How is the water flowing? Is the stormwater pipes under the ground and, and, and the stormwater infrastructure in place, is it supporting the amount of rain that we are getting? We now know that we are getting more intense rains more frequently, so our infrastructure really has to support that. So the watershed studies kicked off, and our engineers have been working to, one, connect with community members, residents, people who are living through these experiences, going out to sites, focus groups, public information meetings, um, and then gathering all of that information and putting it together into a report of possible solutions. We are finally, finally able to share the final draft of the first three studies, um, which includes the Spring Harbor Watershed, Stricker's Mendota Watershed, and Wingro West Watershed. So now the communities that are impacted in those watershed-specific areas have 30 days um, to give us their feedback on what they think of these solutions. So this is the first time that we're actually able to share, like, here's what we think will help fix this. So you mentioned a little bit earlier, Madison, obviously a city surrounded by many lakes. What do these watersheds sort of provide to us during these large rainfalls that sort of, I don't know if I want to say protect us against these lakes, or maybe what I'm trying to ask is why are these watersheds so important? Sure. So the first step is understanding what a watershed is, because it's not really your typical term, correct? So when I say the city of Madison is divided into 22 watersheds, well, a watershed is a land of area, a section of land area that drains rainfall runoff or stormwater is what we call it, um, to a single outlet. So in those 22 different watersheds, each of those watersheds goes to one, flows to one location or direction. Um, why is that important? It's, it's entirely important when you're trying to control which way the, the water flows, right? You have to understand that it all flows a certain way before you can even um, attempt to design around it or, or work through it. Um, so that's, that's really important. Um, and especially when we're talking about flood events, um, you can ask anybody who lives in any of those watersheds and they certainly um, definitely understand now the, the gravity of what it means to live in an area that doesn't have stormwater infrastructure that supports these storms. They see, you know, water rising on their streets. They have, um, during these, uh, these drastic events, um, they might have a sump pump that's constantly pumping. Um, there's all of these different everyday things that people really experience, but they also um, are looking for some solutions. And that's what we're hopeful that these these reports, um, we finally can say, hey, here's what we think will work, and we want to know what, you're, what you think of this. 
Um, so a huge, a huge point of progress in our studies so far. Let's jump into the plans then, the three plans that were released earlier today. Let's start off with the Spring Harbor Plan, which is over on the west side, sort of around West Town Mall going into Lake Mendota. What did you find with that plan? So specifically, um, these are like 200-page documents, so it'd be impossible for me to condense it into three minutes for you, but I can give you some highlights um, of some of the solutions that we're proposing. Um, we are looking at, you know, uh, proposing an expansion of the pond near West Town Mall, the soccer field one that everybody is kind of familiar with. Um, that channel crossing, um, providing some upgrades with that. Um, greenway improvements in Spring Harbor, also large box culvert upgrades near Bordner Park. So those are the main highlights in the Spring Harbor watershed. Wingra West, um, we're looking at a large regional pond expansion at Odana Golf Course. Uh, also a large pipe upgrade from the golf course to the Arboretum. So those are huge, two huge um, suggestions that we have. Again, not all, but the highlights. Um, again, people should definitely go to the reports and look through all of them. Um, for Stricker's Mendota, we're suggesting um, and working toward a solution that looks like a large channel project that is kind of already under, already under design um, from Old Middleton Road to Lake Mendota, but we really want to hear from the public on what they think of that and how it, if it should change. Um, and then also specifically mostly just pipe upgrades in that area. Um, definitely areas that we're seeing um, more flow and, and the need for a, a larger pipe that needs to support the amount of stormwater in that area. So those are the three main, um, the three first reports the highlights from each report. Again, just a few options um, that we're suggesting, but again, it, I, could, I could never boil 200 pages of data into three minutes, so hopefully that, that helps. With these three plans that we have then, I know these are just three of a couple that are going to be introduced, but what comes next with these after we uh, hear public input? How long will it take until some of these things become implemented and what will it take to implement these things? Well, um, the, these are the first three, so we'll have 30 days of comment, um, and people um, in the community should email the specific project manager for each watershed. Um, that is all listed on the project pages and also on the City of Madison Engineering website. Um, so that's the first step is comment, feedback, look through the report, let us know what you think. Um, we want to hear all of it. Um, after that is closed, um, I guess we'll have to adjust and see how long it'll take to apply. Um, maybe at this point, we've we've heard a lot of feedback and we've done a lot of public engagement. So we're hopeful that there isn't anything you know large or, or glaring that we missed. But we really want to just cover our bases and make sure that we're hearing from everyone. So 30 days to to comment and and ask questions and provide feedback. After that, I, I, I couldn't say because it all depends on the feedback that we have. Um, but as far as construction, uh, this, is, this is all dependent on budget. So these are expensive projects. I mean, millions of dollars. And stormwater infrastructure is very expensive. Um, so I think realistically, these will be spread out. These projects will be spread out over a number of years. Um, each watershed is going to have its projects, and each of the projects are millions of dollars. 
Um, and you can't possibly, there just isn't enough money to do all of them all in one year, correct? Even though we want answers like yesterday. So um, it, it will take time, just like the watershed studies, but as we go forward, that's kind of what our, our path looks like. Well, Hannah, do you have just any final thoughts that you'd like to share with us on these reports? You know, that it's, a, it's a lot of data. It's a lot of data, and there's a lot of people who have put in to these reports, but if you can take a moment and click to the website and even just skim through them or look through your specific one and provide, you know, two or three really meaningful feedback chunks, whether it's good, bad, or ugly, um, we want to know about it and we want to hear from it. Um, we want to hear from you. I think the biggest thing is it's been remarkable, the, the feedback and the public engagement so far um, from meeting people out in the field um, to meeting them at public meetings that started as in-person and now virtual, obviously, because of the pandemic. Um, all the on-site visits, all of that has led to this, and we're really just proud to be able to give our community some answers, finally. Um, everybody's been wanting answers since the devastating flood, especially, and we understand how, um, how, how it impacts people. Flooding impacts people, and stormwater infrastructure matters. And so we're really proud to put this out there so that people can tell us how we can be better. I've been speaking with Hannah Molinitsky with the City of Madison Engineering Division about the new reports on Madison's watersheds. You can read the reports and submit your thoughts at the City of Madison website. Hannah, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you so much. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. Coming up, the ins and outs of Madison government this week with Forward Lookout, the newest word-guessing game with Bridging the Gap, and a review of the newest Nicolas Cage movie. But now we'll take a quick break, and then we'll check in on some world headlines back in a flash. time right now is 6.32 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host Sam Swartz here with my co-host Nicholas Leet. Thanks for joining us tonight. Every Monday, contributor Brenda Conkle looks ahead to city, county, and school agendas, agendas to find out what's coming up in local government. This week, breaching tools, how to make a complaint, and redesigning the bus system. All these and more on this week's Forward Lookout. Hello again, it's Monday, and that means we're speaking to Brenda Conkle from ForwardLookout.com about what's happening this week in local government. All these uh, meetings are virtual. Uh, just We'll get that up front, just so you know. Uh, Dane County in particular, you usually have to register in advance, so just keep that in mind. So happening right now, it's the Youth Commission, specifically the Youth for Youth subcommittee of the Youth Commission, and uh, they're going to be looking at some proposals, right? Yep, uh, they get proposals every year and they rank them and decide which one should get funded. So they're going to be reviewing the proposals that have been submitted 
for this year. Okay, that's good. And then on Tuesday, we have uh, 7.30, bright and early. It's the Henry Vilas Zoo Commission. And they, they, hey, they're they're making a decision tomorrow, it looks like. Yeah, they have something on there besides the zoo report. It's amazing. Uh, but all they're deciding is who's going to be doing their catering services at the Henry Vilas Zoo. Oh, okay. Where are snow cones are coming from? Good to know. 5 p.m., the Community Development Block Grant Commission is reviewing some reports. Anything else? Um, they are doing a uh, substantial amendment to the Mazomini Flood Mitigation Project. I was really surprised uh, to see this on the CDBG Commission agenda. I was I had to double check, but yes, that's actually on their agenda. Okay, well, uh, and we're still on Tuesday here. The Equal Opportunity Commission's Executive Committee is meeting at 530. Um, yeah, the interesting things kind of looks like they're discussing. <laughs> this is one of the most boring weeks ever. It, it's a little uh, bit boring. Are... <laughs> hey, we're spicing it up though. We'll, we'll just we'll put it out there. It's a little bit of a light week, but we're gonna just make the most of it, okay? So, if you want to know about filing a complaint, this actually might be a good uh, meeting to take a look at. Yeah, they are. They will be talking about how, what's going to be on their next agenda on February 9th for the full commission. Um, they're looking at voting on the chair and vice chair, and then they've got lots of reports to look at. All right, looking forward here. Well, Board of Health, hey, interesting, Wednesday, 5 p.m. Uh, that's a joint committee of Mass and Dane County. They're getting a COVID-19 update. They are. They'll get their update. They get one every month. Um, it's usually uh-huh. not in writing, so you have to attend to see once what they say. Um, and then they will also be looking at some budget line transfers. So um, lots of money to move around, um, probably scrambling to make sure that they can do everything they need to do this year. Yes. And also Thursday, we'll just skip down to uh, the Dane County Board and its executive committee. So first is the executive committee, and they start at 530, followed by the full board meeting at 7. And kind of a light agenda, but why don't you walk us through it, uh, Brenda? Sure. Uh, Executive committee will be talking about county executive appointments that would be approved a few hours later, and then also looking at an agreement for the Dane Arts Mural Arts uh, lease for them. So uh, again, lots of exciting things this week. And then the county board has many, many routine items. Some of the things that might be of interest is they're also going to be talking about broadband access and that um, having UW-River Falls conduct a survey for them. They'll also be looking at some funds that the city is giving them to do an assessment of food security gaps. And then they will looking at a couple uh, policing things. They'll be getting some more funding to purchase breaching tools for the sheriff's office and accepting more money for the Dane County Narcotics Drug Task Force grant. And then last but not least, they will be uh, doing carry forwards from last year. So money that wasn't spent last year that they're going to go ahead and spend in this year. Maybe they should be talking about the jail project because there's a lot going on behind the scenes that nobody seems to be talking about. But I guess that's for another meeting. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested to see once how that starts to turn out. It seems like some people are changing their minds. Yes, it does. And uh, you didn't say teaching tools for the sheriff's office. You said breaching tools. Uh, so yes, breaching jaw, tools. I, I'm assuming battering rams, jaws of life, those kind of things. It is for the tactical response yes. team. So I would think, yes. yes. Okay, perhaps maybe a robot or two in there. <laughs> Moving on to the city of Madison, uh, already in progress, it's the Landmarks Commission. The, they're looking at two properties and also their annual report. Uh, 704 East Gorham, there's going to be a, a new, um, an addition to the Collins House, which is a designated Madison landmark. That's why it's on there. And then there's an exterior alteration at 924 Williamson Street. And installation of signage. 
Don't yeah, forget don't that. forget that. Don't it's forget very that. exciting. Yeah. No, <laughs> we have tight sign rules in this town. <laughs> very tight sign rules. Well, we have a notice of a possible quorum of uh, various city committees because of of what? That's also today. Yeah, five yep, p.m. At five, yeah, at five o'clock, the transportation policy and planning board is meeting. And um, this is probably the most exciting thing happening this week. They are going to be talking about the Madison Metro Transit redesign draft plan. Um, and so alders are being invited to check that out. And then also they are talking about their um, annual operation report. So I think uh, the transit redesign of how, how the buses are going to go, are they going to you know focus more on yeah. low-income neighborhoods or are they going to focus more on high ridership? Obviously, probably neither, something in between. But working out all those details is, is what's before them. We'll move on to Tuesday, 4.30. The Common Council Executive Committee will meet. And then we have uh, the, full ca- uh, the, the full Common Council at 6.30. Sure. Uh, Common Council Executive Committee will be talking about, well, they'll be getting an update on the Housing Forward Plan, which is the annual plan or biannual plan that the, the city does about housing in Madison. And then they'll also be getting some updates on the men's shelter and the dairy drive campsite. Um, when they're done with that, they'll be talking about some requests from the Poet Laureate to, to do some poetry for the council meetings. And then they are looking at changing some of their procedures, basically when people can speak and also um, how to present the consent agenda. And then the council is meeting at 630 and yes. it, they do have several honoring resolutions. Um, they'd have a few uh, alcohol licenses as usual. You can check those out on the on the blog site. And then um, they will also be confirming they're going to continue meeting virtually for a few more months until May. And then they're going to be talking about the uh, parking enforcement officers and some of the promises that were made in their transition from the police department to the parking division, making sure that that's all in writing for those those employees. Yeah, the, those uh, they were not happy about that. No, they were not. No, they um, were not. And uh, hopefully they're getting things straightened out. Yes. We'll end with the Board of Public Works on Wednesday, I believe, at 4.30. More riveting stuff. If really. they're ripping up your sidewalk, you're going to want to know about it. Right. In District 5, that is what they're going to be talking about. They're going to be saw cutting and uh, ripping up some sidewalks. So if you live in District 5, uh, you may be interested in that. They're also going to be um, you know, doing some more change orders, which they do. And approving some plans and specs, which if you have children with disabilities, um, they are talking about the 2022 inclusive playgrounds funding. So that may be of interest. Yes. And that District 5 is uh, on the near west side of town, kind of up by Picnic Point and in Shorewood area. Yep. Alder Regina Vivider is the alder there. That's right. And for more absolutely, totally fascinating meetings happening this week and all the details and agenda items so you can get involved, uh, head on over to forwardlookout.com. All right, Brenda, you have a great week, okay? You too. Bye. On today's edition of The Past Isn't Past, feature contributor Harry Richardson recalls one of the biggest civil rights actions in the 60s, the New York City school boycott in 1964. Gillen Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time for our brothers and our sisters up and down that picket line. For the unnamed and unnumbered who struggle brave and long. For the union men and women standing up and standing strong. This Thursday, February 3rd, marks the 1964 New York City school boycott. The boycott involved nearly half a million people and was the largest civil rights action of the 60s, nearly twice as big as the March on Washington. 
464,000 students, about half the student body, boycotted the New York public schools to protest worsening segregation in an event called Freedom Day. Most who boycotted were African American and Puerto Rican. Thousands of teachers also participated, but the boycott failed to achieve its aims. The boycott was a decade in the making. After the 1954 Supreme Court decision of Brown v. Board of Education, Ella Baker and Dr. Kenneth Clark, two of the nation's most important African-American thinkers and activists, worked to make school segregation an issue that school officials and politicians couldn't ignore. At that time, New York City had the largest black population in the nation, but its schools and neighborhoods were segregated. New York City schools in black and Puerto Rican neighborhoods had poorly maintained school buildings and underqualified teachers, and overcrowding forced students to attend in shifts for partial school days. Hiring managers used an oral exam to justify discriminating against teachers with foreign or southern-sounding accents, and other policies blocked hiring teachers of color. In response to pressure from black and Latinx parents, school officials proposed modest changes to promote racial integration, but white parents responded with intense resistance. So the school district retreated, setting up a committee to study the problem, including Baker and Clark, to deflect criticism by civil rights activists. In September of 1957, Baker organized a picket of over 500 African American and Latinx parents at City Hall. At a public hearing on school integration, Black parent activist May Mallory asserted the Harlem public school that her daughter attended was just as Jim Crow as the Hazel Street School that she attended in Macon, Georgia. Mallory was part of a growing parent movement. She said, We were trying to shame New York because they would always talk about the South and segregation when their hands were dirty too. Mallory noted the horrible unsanitary condition at the school. There were only two bathrooms for 1,600 kids. The toilets were primitive, with one single wood sheet that went from one end of the place to the other with holes cut in it. You couldn't flush it, so whatever the children did, it had to stay there until the time the water came to flush, and that made the school smell terrible. Mallory took her complaint to Albany. Elected officials weren't prepared for this angry black woman. Brand new toilets were put in immediately. Mallory went on to form the Harlem Nine, who pulled their children out of school in protest. The district sued the mothers for failing to comply with compulsory education requirements. The mothers ended up in two separate courts. One judge ruled in favor of them, the other against. The city decided to appeal the decision that went against them, but backed down after harsh rebuke, including criticism from the only black school board member. A growing black parents' movement, civil rights groups, and white and Puerto Rican activists organized a bigger action in New York City. Baynard Rustin, one of the key organizers of the March on Washington, came to help. On February 3, 1964, 464,000 students and thousands of teachers boycotted, marching in front of 300 schools and the New York City Board of Education headquarters, chanting, Jim Crow must go, and singing, We Shall Overcome. They demanded that the school board implement a desegregation plan throughout the city. The New York Times used extreme language to discredit the protests, predicting they would be violent, while respectfully noting much smaller anti-integration marches by white mothers. Most important, the white parents had the support of Emanuel Seller, a Democratic congressman from Brooklyn who helped craft the 1964 Civil Rights Act. The landmark civil rights legislation included a loophole 
that allowed school segregation to exist and expand in northern cities like New York, Boston, Chicago, and Detroit. The Mississippi segregationist, Senator James Eastland, noted at the time, in my opinion, the two senators from New York are at heart pretty good segregationists. Tragically, white backlash prevented meaningful change, and New York City remains one of the most segregated school systems in the nation. This story is rarely included in listings of major civil rights events, likely because it doesn't fit into the neat narrative of civil rights as a Southern problem that has been overcome. It shows the problems are national and still ongoing. And that is our story for today. For the past and past, I'm Harry Richardson. It is now 6.46 p.m. and you're listening to live local news on WORT. Today, the New York Times announced a new acquisition, Wordle. The wildly popular word game, one word a day and only one word a day, has captivated millions of puzzlers. In case anyone's wondering, I got today's in five. Nevertheless, today, news broke that the game has been acquired by the New York Times games department for an undisclosed price in the low seven figures. Feature contributor Teresa Yen put together the following piece before the acquisition was announced, but in this week's edition of Bridging the Gap, Yen dives into the creation of the popular word game and why so many people are playing it. Have you been seeing people post a series of black, yellow, and green squares on their Instagram story and not know what it means? That is the game Wordle, an internet word game that has been sweeping the world. Word games have always been popular. Crosswords, hangman, Scrabble and categories, etc. have long been the common ones that people think about when it comes to word games. But in the past couple of weeks, Wordle has become the word game that everybody is talking about, even being mentioned on several late-night TV shows. This is Bridging the Gap, a weekly feature dedicated to exploring Gen Z culture. So what is Wordle? How do you play it? Despite being a game developed in the internet age, this is a game that does not exist in an app store, but instead on a website. The rules of the game are simple. You have six tries to guess the five-letter word of the day. You can start with any word, and once you enter, you will see whether you got any of the letters correct. If a letter is not in the word, it will show up in a black square. If a letter is in the word but in the wrong place, it will show up in a yellow square. If a letter is in the word and in the right spot, it will show up in a green square. 
Through process of elimination and brainstorming, you get six tries to figure out what the word is. Once you figure out the word, you have to wait until the next day for a new word. You can also share your results on social media without spoiling the answer. The game will generate your results for you in black, yellow, and green squares, indicating what your guesses were and how many guesses you had to try to get the word. The creator of Wordle, Josh Wardle, is a software engineer in Brooklyn who originally created the game for his partner. In an interview with Daniel Victor from the New York Times, Wardle released the story behind his creation for the game. Because he and his partner enjoyed the New York Times Daily Crosswords and Spelling Bee games so much, he wanted to create a fun and easy word game for both of them. Wardle found that, interestingly enough, the one word per day limit was what kept players coming back for more and sharing the game with people. He said the scarcity of the game left people wanting more. Because you only get six tries to figure out the word, people have been strategizing on the best first word to guess to get the most clues. Jimmy Fallon played the game in real time on his show with help from his fellow crew members coming up with a good word to start off the game. What's our first word? What do you normally go with, Quinn? I did title yesterday, and I got it in three guesses. Title? I usually go loved. See, you're confident that a V is going to be in this word? Oh, that's interesting. What do you do? Arise? Arise. Or ado. All right, so let's, what do you think? Entitled, loved, or ado? I like his uh, arise better. Do arise. Right, I'm gonna do arise. This is our first Wait, word. We're going. Here we go. Oh, Boom. <laughs> All right. Yes. As right, more so people eight. share their results on social media, things can get a little competitive. Even though Wordle is a one-person game, the puzzle is the same for everyone on the same day. Thus, sharing your results on social media becomes a way to flaunt your ability to guess the word in the least amount of tries. But sharing your results is optional. If you're someone who simply enjoys the word game on your own, you're not obligated to post your grid on social media. The psychology behind Wordle's increasing popularity does not stray far from the pandemic world that we live in. With the pandemic isolating people in their homes, Wordle is able to provide a simple conversation starter. Aja Romano from Vox writes, Quote, Wordle, an easy, low-stress way of generating conversation and achieving a straightforward daily task in an era where even daily tasks and low-key interaction are sometimes strenuous and overwhelming. End quote. Penny Pexman, a psychology professor at the University of Calgary, writes in an article, quote, Wordle is creating an opportunity for shared experiences at a time when many people are feeling disconnected from others. A Wordle habit is not likely to make you smarter or ward off brain aging, but it may give you a daily dose of complex cognition combined with social interaction, and that can be a very good thing. End quote. In the seemingly never-ending pandemic world, people turn to find joy in the little things. Wordle provides us with the connection and stimulation we need from the isolation and stagnation that we've all been enduring. For Bridging the Gap and WORT News, I'm Teresa Yen. On today's Monday Movie Review, feature contributor Harry Richardson reviews two very different films. The first, independent film Pig, has a remarkable performance by Nicolas Cage. The second one, February 1, The Story of the Greensboro Four, an award-winning documentary about the lunch counter sit-in that inspired the Student Nonviolent Coordinating, Coordinating Committee, or SNCC. You made the right choice being out there in the woods. 
there's nothing here for you anymore. There's really nothing here for most of us. Buy yourself a new pig. That was a clip from the trailer for Pig, written and directed by Michael Sarnowski. It's Sarnowski's first feature. On the surface, this is a simple story of a man, Robin Feld, Nicholas Cage's best role in years. He's a reclusive truffle hunter in the Oregon woods. His pig is his only companion. He has little outside contact except for his supplier, Amr, Alex Wolf. Amr buys whatever truffles Rob and his pig have gathered and sells them to Upper Crust restaurants in Portland. They have a simple, practical relationship until one night Rob is struck in the head and his pig stolen. Rob enlists the help of the reluctant Amr. You like this car? You like that shirt? Rob says in his deadpan way, reminding Amr who makes Amr's life possible. They track down the thieves, but the pig has been sold to a mysterious person in the city. Rob presses Amr for a ride, and he becomes his reluctant partner in an effort to find Rob's pig. We follow along in growing fascination and sadness. Rob is single-minded in his pursuit, and Amr is surprised by Rob's knowledge and effect on the people he meets. Rob was a legendary chef in the day, but tragedy struck, and he retreated into the woods. The film takes several unexpected twists and turns. It's a story about finding what you love and doing that, regardless of what others may think. To say more would give away too much. It is better watched than explained. Pig recently started showing on Hulu. It has received deserved award buzz. I highly recommend it. Now for another film from the 2022 MLK Day, the World House Documentary Film Festival. In 1960, things did change dramatically in Greensboro is the origin of all of those events that occurred subsequent to February 1st, 1960. That was a clip from the trailer for The Moving, outstanding documentary, February 1, the story of the Greensboro Four, directed by Rebecca Saris and Steve Channing. The award-winning documentary was originally aired on PBS in 2003. The story starts on February 1st, 1960, in Greensboro, a small town in North Carolina with a couple of black colleges. Though there had been at least 16 sit-ins protesting whites-only policies over the prior three years, this one was the one that inspired in just a few days similar actions in 54 cities throughout the South. It started out in a late-night bull session where the four freshmen had dared each other to do something. They had grown up in North Carolina, David Richmond, Franklin McCain, Jibreel Kazan, Boren Easel, Blair Jr., and Joseph McNeil, frustrated by Jim Crow laws especially McNeil, whose family had moved to New York City after his high school graduation. He had found New York to be a much more open place, and it was hard to be back home. Then he came back from Christmas break by bus from New York and was refused service at the Greensboro Greyhound bus depot. He told the others, and they decided to sit in at the Woolworths lunch counter. Three were dressed in their Sunday best. The fourth didn't have time to change after class. The four sat down in the whites-only section. McCain remembers that he knew this would be the high point of his life. I felt clean. I had gained my manhood by that simple act, he recalled. They were refused service, but the management, instead of having them arrested, simply closed the lunch counter. They became instant celebrities at North Carolina A&T. They met that evening with student leaders, some of whom agreed to join them the next day. On the third day, the number rose to 80, 
and sympathetic sit-ins starred in Durham, Raleigh, and other North Carolina cities. TV news carried the story across the nation. Behind the scenes, veteran civil rights leaders aided the expanding protests, something not mentioned in the doc. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. spoke to the students, lending his moral support. Finally, after months of protests, Woolworths quietly integrated its lunch counter. By the end of the year, over 75,000 students, black and white, had participated in the sit-ins. The sit-ins inspired the formation of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, and the rest is history. Three of the Greensboro Four remained lifelong activists. Sadly, Richmond, who, like the others, had left town after graduation, his life was threatened, returned to Greensboro to care for his aging parents. He had difficulty getting a job because of his reputation as a troublemaker, finally becoming a custodian. To his credit, he, like the others, always maintained that he would do it again. A good doc well worth watching. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks so much for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Your reporter tonight was Ben Kern, who worked his last reporting shift tonight. Congrats on the new job, Ben. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Brenda Conkle, Teresa Yen, and Dylan Brogren. Special thanks to Nicholas Leet for technical production. Victor Calzoni engineered this show. Nate Wegehout produced this newscast. And Shally Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Sam Swartz. And I'm your host, Nicholas Leet. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the most free-form show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Good night. (laughs) 